Well, good morning, church family. Once again, our country is heartbroken over the senseless shooting that occurred in Parkland, Florida. Seventeen precious people went to school that day and didn't come home. You've heard the amazing stories and the agonizing stories, like the football coach who stepped in front of the students and took the bullets that were intended for them. These kinds of tragedies, when things like this happen, these kinds of tragedies always bring up the hard questions, don't they? They Those questions begin to surface in our spirits, whether we vocalize them or not. Questions like, why did God allow this to happen? Or, where is God in all of this? Did you know that the psalmist asked those kinds of questions, and especially the Old Testament prophets, Several of them ask those same kinds of questions. People have been asking those questions for hundreds and thousands of years. And what we discover as we read the Psalms and as we read the the Old Testament prophets and other places in Scripture, what we discover is that God doesn't always answer our questions. At least not yet. So what's our response as a faith family? What's our response as Christians when a world seems to be out of control and crisis seems to be nearly everywhere Well, in this particular situation, in the shooting in Parkland, Florida, I think our response as believers is this. This is a time for us to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. It's not a time for us to try to defend God. It's not a time for us to try to offer easy answers and try to explain away things. This is a time to acknowledge what the Scripture calls the mystery of iniquity that fills our world. Dr. Russell Moore said it well this week. He said, We live in a fallen world where things are not as they are supposed to be. And that's true. But there are two things we can say with certainty today. Two things that I can say to you as your pastor today with absolute certainty. And it is this. God is still sovereign and just. And one day, He will deal with evil once and for all. We have certainty about that. Scripture is clear about that. God is sovereign and just. And He will one day deal with evil once and for all. But still the question lingers in the air. How do you trust God in a world that is out of control? How do you deal with that? How do you come to grips with with that in a world that's out of control? And that's really what this series is about. This series called Be Still. Last week we looked at Psalm 46. And in Psalm 46, let me remind you, just in case you weren't here, to tell you what we talked about. Psalm 46 was written in a time where God's people were being killed. And the holy city of Jerusalem was being surrounded and, and, and sieged. They were under attack by the Syrian army. It was a time chaotic. It was a time that was tragic. It was a time kind of like what we've seen in our country this week. And the first thing that God says to His people in Psalm 46, the very first thing that God says to His people is this, Be still and know that I'm God. And I told you last week, that's not a condemnation, it's an invitation. God was inviting His people to gain a different perspective. He was inviting His people in the midst of the chaos and the crisis to calm down and to gain a different perspective. And I told you last week that whenever your problems seem big and God's presence seems small, it's time for you to be still. We all need a time when we get quiet 
And his voice is the only voice we're listening to. Just be still and know that I'm God. That was last Sunday. Today, as we continue this series, I, I'll tell you ahead of time, I'm not going to get done with the message. We're going, it's going to be a two-parter. I didn't intend it to be, but that's just the way it has come out. Uh, but today, I want to turn today to another passage of Scripture, not in Psalms, but this time in Exodus 14. Would you open God's Word to Exodus 14? While you're turning to that, let me kind of give you some context information here. Exodus 14 describes the biggest problem that Israel ever faced. They stood in front of an impossibility, and God made the impossible possible. Exodus 14 is the story of the children of Israel being at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army coming hard behind them, after them, and the Red Sea in front of them. And they stood in front of an impossibility, and in the midst of that, God made the impossible possible. It might well be that some of you are facing an impossibility today. It, maybe, it's the, maybe you've got one of those crisis times, one of those problems, and, and the only solution in your problem is a miracle. If that's you, then I want you to read with me in Exodus chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at two key verses in this text. Exodus chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 13 and 14. Let me just read the text, then we're going to back up and get the context. But I want you to see this. This may be a word for you today. Moses answered the people, Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to do what, church? Be still. Now, let me give you the context for that text. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus 12, 13, and 14 is the story of the Exodus. And that's where this book gets its name. It's the story of how God brought His people out of slavery and out of Egypt. Uh, Let's go back for, for the sake of context and look in chapter 13, verse 14. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, notice this, with a mighty hand... The Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of slavery. Remember this, with a mighty hand. With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of slavery. Skip on down, verse 16. And it will be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with His mighty hand. That's a wonderful thing. When, when you're in slavery in Egypt and God brings you out of slavery, when the Lord brings you out of slavery and, and out of bondage, it, it is a wonderful thing. But hear me, church, it doesn't mean once He brings you out of slavery and out of bondage, it doesn't mean that you'll never have any more problems after that. In fact, sometimes it means just the opposite. Sometimes when the Lord brings you out of something, He will also send you into something that was not of your choosing. And that's what we see in this story. Read with me in chapter 13. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was what? Shorter. Now, around our house, we say if it's shorter, it's got to be better. Just a family joke. Don't take that too far, but we've said that for years. You know, if it's shorter, it's got to be better. Well, it wasn't in this case. Because look what what happened here. 
God did not lead them on the road to the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, if I take them the shorter route, they certainly are going to encounter some people that will fight against them. And if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. See, God had a different plan. God said, now, if I take them the direct route, if I take them the shorter route, they're, in, they're going to encounter resistance, and they might get scared, or they might turn back and, and go back to Egypt. No, I'm going to take them a different way. And there's two things I want you to underline in your Bibles. I hope you get, get your pen out. There's two things that are very important that you note in this text. Would you underline, let me find it for you, in verse, verse 18. Would you underline, God led the people. Just underline those words. God led the people in verse 18. God led the people. And then would you underline this, toward the Red Sea. Toward the Red Sea. God led the people. Where did he lead them, church? Where did he lead them? Toward the Red Sea. Now, before we get into that, how did he guide them? How did he lead them? Well, he tells, the text tells us in verse 20, After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. And here's how he led them, verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. The cloud and the pillar of fire were visible symbols of God's presence. They always knew God was with them. And they always knew that God was leading them. They would look up and they would see the pillar of cloud in the daytime and God was leading them. They see the pillar of fire at night and they knew that God was with them and they knew that God was leading them. It was a pretty cool thing. It says in verse 21, to guide them on their way that God used the pillar of fire and the cloud to guide them on their way. You might want to underline that, to guide them on their way. That's pretty incredible. Now, we've never experienced anything like this. But the children of Israel in the wilderness never experienced a day without it. So in order to experience God's will, all that they had to do was play follow the leader. If they wanted to know God's will, they just followed the leader. If they wanted to know God's will, they just followed the cloud. If the cloud moved forward, they moved forward. If the cloud went east, they went east. If the cloud stopped, they stopped. Now think about it. Wouldn't it be great to be able to live like that? I mean, this would be, this, this would be very, very exciting. Suppose that you're wondering if it's God's will for you to move to Texas. What do you do? Just look up. There's the cloud. If it starts going west, pack your bags. You're headed to Texas. Or... Suppose you're trying to find the right job. Just look for the cloud. And when it stops over a place of employment, go in there and put in your application. Or even better than that, let's say you're dating a young lady. You're wondering if she's the right one. No problem. When she opens the apartment door, if there's a little cloud over her head, then go by the ring. I mean, that's how simple it was for the Israelites to follow the Lord. It was simple to follow the Lord in those days. It was simple to follow His leading. They never had to question where God was leading. They never had to hesitate about where God was leading. God gave them divine direction by day and by night, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. God led them day by day all the way to the Red Sea. Now let's read about that. Chapter 14, verse 1. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near, and I've been practicing this word all week long, Pihirath, between Migdal and the sea. And they were to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Now here's the first thing I want you to notice as we read through this text. I want you to notice not only was God leading them, but God told Moses, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn around and go back. I've got a reason for that, but I want you to turn around and go back a little ways, and I want you to camp at this particular location. This is where I want you to camp. Keep that in mind. Verse 3. Pharaoh will think, because you've turned back and kind of wandering around it, or it will look that way, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Now keep reading. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. And he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Now look at verse 9. The Egyptians... All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Harath, opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, the terrifying situation that these people found themselves in, imagine it for a moment. You're camped at this place. The Red Sea is right there in front of you. It looks gorgeous for the moment. It's just a beautiful Red Sea, and, and you're camped there. And then somebody says, look there. And all of a sudden, you look behind you, and Pharaoh and all of his armies are, are coming towards you, and you see this huge cloud, and you know you've got no way to go, nowhere to go, because the Red Sea is in front of you. Pharaoh is coming towards you. You've got no place to go. This terrifying situation, this terrifying situation, was exactly where God had put them. You see, God's people found themselves in this situation, and it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a wrong turn. It wasn't the result of miscalculation. It was a divine appointment. Remember what it said earlier? God led them. God led them by the cloud in the day and the night. God led them, and, and He led them to this particular spot. He even told Moses, this is where I want you to camp. This was not an accident. It wasn't a miscalculation. It wasn't a wrong turn. This was a divine appointment. And listen to me, church. I wish that wasn't the case. But sometimes when you're doing everything right and you're following the Lord as best as you can, you may look up one day and realize you're facing an impossible and scary situation. Question is, why? Isn't that a good question? Why? Why did God lead them to this place? In general, I can answer it this way. When God brings us to those impossible, scary situations, when it's not an accident but a divine appointment, usually it's because He has something to teach us about Himself. You might want to write this down. Some of the biggest lessons in life are learned in some of the greatest challenges of your life. 
You see, the people were concerned about one thing. They were concerned about freedom from Egypt. They were concerned about getting out of slavery. But God's main concern was that the people might know Him more intimately. And we'll look at this next week, but they learned something about God through this experience. They would not have learned if they had gone around the Red Sea. You see, God is more concerned with bringing you into a relationship with Himself than He is in bringing you out of a problem. So we read in verse 10. Verse 10, chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were, they were what, church? What's that next word? They were terrified. You would be too, and I would be too. And they cried out to the Lord. They did exactly what you, you have done and what I've done. And when you get into a crisis situation, and you're terrified, and you're filled with anxiety, and you're overcome with the enormity of your problem, it is quite natural and good for us to cry out to the Lord. We do that. We all do that. There's something else that they did that we also do. Look at the next thing that they did. They cried out to the Lord in verse 10. In verse 11, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us through the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they're praying to God, first response. Second response is what? They're complaining. Haven't you done that? Haven't you started complaining and criticizing because of your situation? I mean, it's quite natural once you get overwhelmed by something. It's quite natural just to start complaining about it, what you're going through and what somebody else did to you and criticizing. It just becomes this, this hard place for you to be in. That's just like us, to pray and then complain. I, I heard David Jeremiah this week. It was, he was preaching on something totally different, but... But he, he had a great story. He said there was a lady in his church who said to him one day, now make sure you get this. If you don't get anything else, make sure you get this. Here's what the lady said to him one day. She said, Pastor, sometimes the Christian life can be so discouraging. I'm tempted to come to your office and turn my Bible in. I thought, man, I appreciate the honesty of that lady. I bet some of you can relate to that. You know, I don't know what to do anymore, Pastor. I don't understand why this is happening to me or to my family. I don't understand why God would, would allow us to go through this. Maybe it's time for me just to turn my Bible in and walk away. Because I don't know if I believe it anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Maybe it's time to turn my Bible in. And I say to you with the pastor's heart, most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us will eventually have a Red Sea moment like that. It may come when you're a college student and your faith is tested. It may come when you have an extended illness for which there seems to be no solution. It may come when you're a young adult and your job is terminated and you're about to lose your house. It may come later in life when you or your spouse suffers a terminal disease. The issue, though, for you is this. How are you going to respond when it happens? What are you going to say when it happens? How are you going to respond to the crisis that you find yourself in? Moses told the people how to respond to their terrifying Red Sea moment. And I think there's some hints here as to how you and I 
should respond as well. Look what he says in verse 13 and 14. And this is really uh, the, the heart of the, of the uh, text that I want you to see. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm. And you'll see the different, or the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is the hinge point of the story. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So what does that mean? Most of what it means, I'll have to push to next Sunday, so you won't have to come back. That's pretty good. And I just kind of worked that in there. You, now you've got to come back next week. Let me, tell you, let me tell you one thing it means. When it says the Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. Let, let me give you at least one. Here it is. It means that God is not fighting against you. It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Remember what Gideon said in Judges 6.13? He said, if the Lord is for us, why has all this happened to us? And I want to say, good question, Gideon. I've, I've wondered that myself. If God really is God, if God really is for us, why is all of this happening to us? That's what Gideon asked. And people have asked that question for many years. Years ago, I read the story of a young man in Utah. It's a true story of a young man in Utah who woke up one day because the plumbing, he was in an apartment, and the plumbing above him started leaking and dripping through the ceiling, and he woke up with the water dropping on his face. Now listen to this. He woke up with, with the, ceil the ceiling was leaking, water was hitting him in the face. He jumped out of bed and found that the water was already ankle deep on his floor. The man decided to call the landlord. The landlord told him to go rent a water vacuum quickly and get the water up before it ruined his, his property. So the young man rushed out to the car and found his tire was nearly flat. He decided he'd better call someone for help. So he ran back into the apartment, sloshed through the water, picked up the phone. This was in the old days when the phone was on the wall. Picked up the, <laughs> picked up the phone, and it shocked him so badly that he ripped the phone off the wall. By that time, he knew he really needed help, so he decided to go back down to his car. But when he tried to get out the door, the door wouldn't budge. The water had made it swell in its frame, so he had to scream, and somebody from outside the apartment, kicked the door in for him. He rushed out to his car, only to find that somebody had stolen the car while all of this was going on. He remembered it didn't have a lot of gas in it, so he ran a couple of blocks down the street, and sure enough, there it was right in the middle of the road. Someone helped him push the car back to his apartment. Finally, he got the water turned off, got the tire, the flat fixed, and put gas in his car. By that time, he had to hurry to make it to his ROTC graduation ceremony. Grabbing his bayonet, he threw it into his car and ran upstairs to dress. When he ran back down to the car, he forgot that he had left his bayonet in the driver's seat, and he sat down on it. Minutes later, he found himself in the emergency room getting strategic surgery. Trudging back to his apartment, later he opened the door, saw that the falling plaster had toppled onto his pet canary's cage, killing the bird. As he dashed over to where the cage lay, he slipped on the wet carpet and injured his back. Once more, he found himself in the emergency room. By that time, a newspaper reporter had caught up with him, and the reporter asked, How can you explain a day like this? The only thing the young man could say was this, Well, it looks like God was trying to kill me, but he just kept missing. 
<laughs> maybe you've had one of those days. Or maybe you've had a month like that. Or maybe, maybe you've had a year like that. Would you, if that's you, if you're going through something that's just chaos and craziness and, and it's scared you to death and it's beyond anything you can fix, I want you to camp out with me for the next few minutes in verse 14. I want you to get your pen out again, and I want you to underline something. Two things in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. Would you underline that? The Lord will fight for you. Let that sink in. The Lord will fight for you. God is not fighting against you, even when it feels like it. The Lord will fight for you. And then get ready to underline another part. He says, you need only, underline these two words, you need only be still. Underline that, be still. Sometimes in the middle of, of a crisis, it takes great faith to believe that, doesn't it? That the Lord will fight for you and that you need only to be still. It takes great faith to believe that. Warren Wiersbe said, true faith depends on what God says, not on what we see or how we feel. Elizabeth Elliot put it well when she said, true faith goes into operation when there are no answers. I love that. True faith goes into operation when there are no answers. George Mueller said it better than anybody, I think, when he said, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. You see, if you're facing an impossible and scary situation, maybe you just need to start right here. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Maybe it'd be good for you to start every day with a declaration, God is for me, not against me. It'd be a good thing for you to start your day with tomorrow. A good thing to start the week with. God is for me, not against me. It would be a good daily reminder for you as you face your Red Sea moment, God is for me, not against me. Pastor, how, how can I be sure of that? Well, the greatest proof, I think, is found in Romans chapter 8. Let's go there. We'll end in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Let's read through this text slowly, carefully. Here's what it says. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It is He who is He that condemns. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I love that. Not only did Jesus Christ die for you, but the Bible says He is now at the throne of God interceding for you. See, God is for you, not against you. In fact, Jesus is interceding for you right now as you go through your Red Sea moment. Now keep reading. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Hardship? Persecution? 
famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Skip down to verse 37. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, hear this church, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bible makes it clear. God is for you. One thing I want you to get before you leave today is that deep-seated knowledge that even though you may be in a Red Sea moment, God is for you. Now it's interesting to me that what Moses told the people to do as they faced the scariest moment of their lives. Back in Exodus 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. And here's what he said, here's what you need to do. You need only to be still. Now last week I explained to you that the word be still, rafa in the Hebrew language, it means to relax, to quit, to take your hands off of it. This word, be still, is a different Hebrew word. We'll get into it next week, but let me just whet your appetite a little bit. This word means something quite different. This word means basically to be quiet. Just be quiet. Remember what the people of God were doing? They were complaining. They were stressed out and they were complaining. And and Moses said, listen, God's going to fight this battle for you, but it's you just need to be quiet. I don't know if you remember, I told you last week that the Lord gave me those three words. One of them is slow down. Stop the physical activity. That was kind of a summary of last week's message. Slow down. Be still. Know that I'm God. Slow down. Stop the physical activity. Today the word is calm down. Calm down. Stop worrying. The Lord will fight this battle for you. You just need to quiet. I understand that it's so easy to get called up in the whatabouts. Yeah, but, what about? Yeah, but, what if? Yeah, but, how about? And it's so easy to get old just in knots. And Moses said, listen, God's got this. You need to be quiet. Maybe, Maybe that's just the word you need today. God's for you, not against you. Right now, he's simply saying, my child, just be quiet. Rest in me. Just this week, remind yourself, God's for me, not against me. And just be quiet in His presence. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank You that we can relax in You. We can lean on You. And in those times, Lord, when, when it's stressful and those times when we want to just cry out in agony, those times when we're so anxious... Calm our fears. Calm our spirits. Help us to be still. Help us to be quiet in your presence. As the psalmist once wrote, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. 
And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.